0: Welcome to Paul.com Security Weekly, episode 89 for November 23rd, 2007.
1: episode sponsored by core security technologies helping you penetrate your network version 7.5 just out including the all new web application testing modules listen to this podcast and qualify to receive a 10 percent discount on core impact the world's best penetration testing tool
0: This podcast is also sponsored by Tenable Network Security. Tenable is the developer of enterprise vulnerability, compliance, and log management software. But most notably, the creators of Nessus, the world's best vulnerability scanner. Tenable Security Center extends the power of Nessus through reporting, remediation workflow, and IDS event correlation. Tenable also offers a direct feed subscription for immediate access to new Nessus plugins and compliance checks. Tenable, unified security monitoring. And welcome to this edition of Paul.com Security Weekly, an entertaining look at the current information, security, news, vulnerabilities, and research. I am your host, Paul Asidorian,
1: And I am your co-host, Larry Pesci, coming to you via Skype.
0: Via Skype! Yes, we are here podcasting on um, Black Friday again. I remember we did a Black Friday episode maybe when we first started? I think so. I think I think last we did. Year- I think we were at a particular place in downtown providence
1: yes we might have been yes (laughs) you're right
0: we are we were remember that we were drinking tea right i think we went to to tea lux that day i believe you are right fond memories i um. i did you know i have so much techno stuff that i i checked my feeds this morning for deals i found that there was a lot of um high definition tvs on sale this week and today especially so i'm not really in the market for one so i kind of didn't pay attention to it
1: yeah, there was one. Actually, that we
0: were looking- I still have some technology in shrink wrap, which I I need to get around to, to implementing. <laughs> so I, I I know the feeling. Yeah, I, I wasn't inclined to buy anything else.
1: Right. Yeah, I, we were actually looking at a TV um, earlier this year. Uh, one of the models that they actually we wanted to purchase uh, was one of the ones that was on sale at Walmart for yeah
0: um, four hundred dollars less. So did you get up at like four in the morning and? I did, but it wasn't to
1: go to buy TVs.
0: Oh, it was it was to feed the baby, right? Yeah, yes it was. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice,
1: nice.
0: So we have a deal with Sans. If you register for a Sans conference, use paul.com.com. dot com. That's P A U L D O T C O M dot com forward slash Sans It helps us buy cool stuff, it helps support our podcast, and um, it helps promote SANS as well, So, and we like SANS. So speaking of SANS, um, hopefully I will be teaching Security 535 in New Orleans, um, provided that um, everyone goes to the registration site right now via our click-through and registers for the class. Yes, do it. With that class, you do get a copy of Lynx's Ultimate WRT54G Hacking, authored by Larry and myself. You also get a WRT54GL router, and um, you get to spend the entire day with me learning about embedded devices and how to hack them.
1: That is the worth the price of admission right there. Yeah, well, you Spending know. Spending the day with Paul.
0: And you get to hackle me the whole day, so I don't know, that's, you know. Heckling is good though. I actually like to be heckled. <laughs> I haven't been heckled in a presentation in quite some time.
1: Ooh, I'll have to i to change that.
0: Yeah. So I wish people would heckle me. Like I gave that presentation to DC four oh one and no one heckled me. Like they all had like positive and very intelligent feedback. No one was heckling. No one asked you why you hate freedom so much? Yeah. That's just no and not even to that extreme of heckling, but no one questioned like I like to be questioned about the content in my presentation, so I I, I wish that people would, you know? But then again, some people don't show up because they're afraid they can't find parking, so...
1: Yeah, parking is really easy to find considering right around the cor- corner there's,
0: there's a parking garage. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, Offensive Security, we are still running this contest. We received yes. one submission so far yep. for this contest. So if you write in and you tell us how you use the Backtrack CD, we will then pick the best story, and that yep. person wins some free training from the folks at Offensive Security. It's online right. training. And so you don't have,
1: to, don't have to go anywhere. You can take it from anywhere.
0: Yeah, and I've heard that it's pretty fabulous. I think one of our um, listeners wrote in and told us they about did. it and said that it was very good.
1: It did. They did. They said it was excellent.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's good that we've received some positive feedback on the training that we're about to give away. So since we've only received one submission, we'll let it go for at least another couple of weeks Solicit right. some more feedback, and again, write in. Tell us how you use the backtrack CD. An interesting story. Um, yeah, it could cut be. Up, ahead, cut off. Cut off date is January first. I'm sorry. Oh, oh. So we did set yeah. a cut off date on that. Okay. So we, Yeah, because we we don't want it to go on forever because then no one will take advantage of the training. Right. So before January 1st, thank you, Larry, providing a little structure for us there. We (laughs) will need to have your submissions about how you've used the Backtrack CD. The most fun, interesting, enlightening story wins and you receive some free training and potentially you can come on Paul.com Security Weekly if you are so inclined and tell us about your experiences, both with the Backtrack CD and the training. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, that was that was part of the deal. If you uh, put in a really good technical uh, segment and description of how you use it, you're more than welcome to come on the podcast and tell us all about it.
0: That's it. Yeah. So, uh, Larry, tell me about the beer while I actually go get another one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so check out the beer listing um, by episode in the wiki if you go to Polycom forward slash – Paul.com.com forward slash wiki. Um, There's a link there for all of our beer. Uh, We actually forgot to put this stuff in for the last episode. We remembered one of them. Um, We've been kind of lax about putting the links in lately. But in any case, I am drinking uh, Dogfish Head Black and Blue. It's a um, malt beverage, allegedly, fermented with black raspberry and blueberry puree. Really? Yeah, it's actually pretty good. And it's uh ten percent alcohol by volume. Oh
0: nice.
1: And it's one point nine pints.
0: One point so it's almost is that almost two pints? Is that what you're um pushing 1. it. One point nine?
1: Yeah, it's a very large bottle.
0: Really? Yeah. Now I wanna say that my favorite American breweries. I can say that because I've only had one beer so far, (laughs) after a few breweries, um, happens to be the uh, Dogfish Head Mm -hmm. Brewery and also the Sierra Nevada Brewery in California. Yep. Good stuff comes out of Sierra Nevada. They have a barley wine style ale called Bigfoot Ale. And that is what I'm drinking right now. And it smells fruity and delicious. Have you tried it yet? Uh, I'm gonna about to try it right now. Hang on,
1: because I am a big fan of the barley wine and the barley wine style ales.
0: Oh, that's really good! Wow, <laughs> it tastes like um, it's been overly hopped, but it doesn't like produce that like if you just sucked on a lemon reaction.
1: Yeah, no, it doesn't.
0: Yeah, that's really really good. Wow, it's really hoppy. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, I wasn't expecting a, the glorious hops, Larry. Mm. Hops, glorious hops. I'm just on a – okay. With that, we're going to cut to commercial. Before we get off too much on a tangent on beer, um, we're actually – unless we have any more announcements, we're going to cut to commercial. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about, yes, the iPhone. I'm going to eat my words, tell everyone how I bought an iPhone, how I like it and the methods that myself and I'm sure other people on paul.com are going to go through to talk about the security of the iPhone, hacking the iPhone, um, and all things iPhone security related. So let's get to it. Slide your card here Mm -hmm. Um, for the donkey show. Whoa! Where is Twitchy? He's like that podcast new media like icon. I mean, at this point, he's got to be a new media icon that just, you know, he stands for... You know everything that Web 2.0 is about, but you know, yet he hasn't come back on the show. I don't, I don't understand it, Larry.
1: I don't get it either. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I thought he was buried in your backyard. (laughs) Shh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So yes, I broke. So this is iPhone security part one. I broke down, and I bought an iPhone. I know. I knocked the iPhone. I didn't want an iPhone, and I didn't want an iPhone for, you know, a a few reasons. One, it was a closed platform. It still is very much a closed, excuse me, platform. They have released an SDK, which is Progress, and they are going to support third-party applications. It's kind of unclear as to how they're going to do that. We'll get, we'll talk more about that, too. Um, You know, it doesn't have any expandable memory. It doesn't have a GPS on it. it. It's only the Edge network. It's not the 3G network. But what I found since I've owned it is those things kind of are irrelevant because the user experience is, is pretty slick. It kind of makes up for the, some of those missing features. Um, one of the other reasons why I bought an iPhone as opposed to another phone was the, the Nokia phone that I wanted that was comparable. Um, actually, it was much better than the iPhone, in, in my opinion. Blows it away, in fact, with, with features is the Nokia N95. Um, have I heard reports that the user interface wasn't as slick? And not a lot of people in the U.S. have, or even you know, in the world, have the Nokia N95. And, mm. and you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have an iPhone was because there are so many people using them. There's even talk I'm on some private mailing lists where we were talking about how um, corporations are going to have to deal with the iPhone just because they're just like the hot phone to have right now. And also the new Apple iPod Touch is based on the same hardware and software. So I think that a lot of the vulnerabilities you're going to find in the iPhone – will translate to the iPod and these are devices that are being carried by more and more people every day and as everyone knows who's a regular listener of the podcast both Larry and myself are very big on mobile devices and embedded devices and the security of those devices so I thought it was a really good way for me to um, contribute to you know the security of the iPhone in two fashions really in two ways and that's one user-wise, how can you as a user or you as someone responsible for users and their security um, implement security on your phone so that you understand the risks and that you don't get owned? And then also for the penetration testers in all of us, how do we attack things like the iPhone, and in this case the iPhone specifically, and what do we do when we attack them? How do we go about attacking them? What do we do once we've successfully exploited it? I think that those lessons are very much um, uh, appreciated by the penetration testers because there's a lot of hidden gems there that I wanted to cover. And, and, and that kind of speaks to, to risk as well. I don't think people understand that when you break into someone's smartphone, how really valuable that is as a penetration tester and how valuable that is to an attacker as well. And, you know, I haven't even delved into it. In, in fact, one of the things I liked about the blue, blue the uh, iPhone was the Bluetooth was disabled by default. Now, Larry, I don't know how many phones you've had uh, recently in the past. But, it, you know, in my experience, Bluetooth a lot of times goes enabled by default.
1: Yeah, I haven't had many phones in the past recently. I've just now, had my... You Black, ordered that BlackBerry, but, right? Uh, if I remember correctly, when I first got that Black, Bluetooth was enabled by default.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that's been my experience with some of the phones that I've picked up too. So Bluetooth on this, as far as I could tell, was disabled by default. Um, I, you know, I went through the settings menu and and did see that it was off. And I think this is a, an important thing that our devices are going to need to implement, and that is if. You have features on the phone that aren't required necessarily for core functionality that you leave them disabled. And with something like the iPhone, to, to speak to the usability, which I'm I'm really impressed with and how easy it is to actually use in the user experience, that you can leave a feature like Bluetooth disabled because the phone is so freaking easy to use that most people are going to know how to turn it on. You know?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I will say that you know, recently there's been some things in the media that the iPhone is in fact so easy to use that all these celebrities that use them in TV shows can use them upside down.
0: <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I just had to get that out there. That's nice. Um, the other thing I liked about the iPhone security was that it came with the latest firmware preinstalled. Nice. when I got it it was at firmware 1.1.2 which means it had the patch for the libtiff vulnerability hmm. now I'm sure if I delved into a lot of the you know the underground um, hacking forums that surround the iPhone that I could um, I don't know is it really possible to back rev the firmware on the iPhone? Um,
1: I don't know, but in, uh, if you wanted to hack it, you didn't. From my understanding, you do not need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, one dot one dot two was hacked before it was even available.
0: Okay, okay, Why? so you could ha- uh, jailbreak it essentially, get SSH access to it, that kind yes. of thing.
1: Yep. Yes, that that is my understanding.
0: I have not done that yet because I wanted to test the security of it without having that level of access. Because I think that the majority of people aren't doing that to their phones and interacting with SSH on their phones and a command shell. Right. Um The other thing I liked about the security of it was that it asks me before connecting to wireless networks. So if it sees an open wireless network, it'll ask me, hey, do you want to connect to this or not? Um, now, once you do connect to it, I think that does go into something like the preferred networks in Windows XP. Because once I said connect to my open wireless network at my house... Um, we, which I have for various purposes. I know we, we tell people not to have that, but I do. Um,
1: but it's on, a sep- it's on a separate interface on your
0: firewall. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. We practice defense in depth. Um, but it, it hasn't asked me if I want to connect to that network, so it just kind of automatically associates to it, which is bad. So um, good that it does ask me for the first time, bad that it doesn't ask me each subsequent time it connects to an open wireless network.
1: Mm, it would be um, interesting to see how it would react to Karma.
0: It, it would be we and that's the kind of things we can test and and one of the reasons why i bought the phone is so we can test things specifically like that and how it stands up to some of the attacks that we would put against it um as penetration testers you know assessing a wireless network um or, or what have you so you know to can speak to the third party application thing you know it, it's gotten a lot of press lately which has been it, it's really bad um I guess first let's talk about the video that was posted on hacking the iPhone um, using Metasploit. Mm. Now they exploited the phone using the LibTiff vulnerability, and you know it's funny. I was saying the the chat room today, they got some some laughter on the IRC channel, some lols. laughs. It's, and I said, you know, vulnerabilities are so nineties, and <laughs> the new method of entry needs to be more. Resilient than just an exploit for a single vulnerability, because as I said, Apple did a good job of putting the latest firmware on my phone. Whereas devices such as like the Linksys WRT54G, when so you go bad. buy a certain version, right, Larry? I, you've experienced this. Oh yeah, we've bought several WRT54Gs. When we get them out of the box, are they usually on the latest firmware? No, no, exactly. Now,
1: part of, part of that, they sit on the shelves for so damn long.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the it, maybe the iPhones just aren't sitting on the shelves long enough to have the updated firmware. But when you do plug it into iTunes for the first time, um, it's very easy to just go update the firmware on it. Um, you it's do like have it's to also, actually click something.
1: Yeah, is it also easy to say, no, don't update it this time?
0: Um, I don't know because mine's on the latest version. So I haven't experienced uh-huh. enough. In the next upgrade, I'll let you know how that whole process goes. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, it, I you know, I think that's good that it does have the latest firmware. Um and uh so the older phones had that libtiff vulnerability that we talked about on the show. Someone used that vulnerability and the work that HD Moore did with Metasploit to exploit the phone get the iPhone uh, payload on the phone, use the iPhone payload to download some additional utilities, one of those utilities was a voice recorder. So they were able to turn the iPhone into a remote um, listening device and actually record... Files to the phone. Now, it has 8 gigs of storage. My, I, I don't know. Do they even sell a 4-gig version? All, all I saw was 8-gig versions.
1: Yeah, they do not sell the 4-gig anymore.
0: Yeah, it's just the 8-gig version. So yeah. 8 gigs, you can store a lot of audio on that. And they store it locally on the phone and then use the iPone's um, download and upload feature to download the audio to their workstation and then play in QuickTime. So it's, it's a neat little demonstration. Now, they didn't give you a whole lot of details as to how they did all of it, um, i don 't know if the recorder was an existing third party app something they cross compiled themselves i 'm not i 'm not quite sure about that piece um, but the comments that went along with that video were you know along the lines of I love Steve Jobs and he would never let anyone spy on us <laughs> yeah
1: yeah i i also I also heard somewhere that um in in I don't know whether it's in that video or another one. They were also able to record phone calls that were taking
0: place on the phone itself.
1: Yeah, using I, the same the same sort of methodology.
0: Right. it looked like a, a very common open source tool, and I don't remember from the video because it only showed up for a brief period of time. It it was a, it looked like a very standard Unix Linux utility um, that they installed on the phone for recording, and I would imagine that if you were in a call that you could definitely pick up on the person speaking into the microphone. I'm not sure about recording the person on the other end. Sure. Gotcha. Um, so again, kind of light on the details there. But it, it did demonstrate that it is possible. And I think that that's something as penetration testers that we can definitely take advantage of, that mm-hmm. if we can show a potential client, especially someone in you know government or um Healthcare, you know, patient confidentiality, those types of situations. I think it's really important that you be aware that if, hey, if someone can break into someone's iPhone who has top secret clearance or who is standing next to someone who has top secret clearance and you're recording their conversations or whatever the case, maybe whatever the scenario is, that right. that's a very powerful thing that you know it's not something you're going to pick up on a nessus scan against a vulnerable, you know an organization it's not something you're going to hack into their website and determine it's right. something that i think a real world attacker is going to do to try and gather information and attack an organization and it's something that maybe us as penetration testers aren't going to necessarily go, okay, let's look at all the iPhones that this, you know, or smartphones that this organization has. Let's break into them and let's see what we can do. I think that this is kind of like a new emerging, um, it's not an emerging threat because I think the threat is already there, but it's an emerging threat certainly for organizations to help them understand that this poses risks to their information of their organizations. And I think it's, it's important to to see that and a lot of the comments from the apple community that you know they don't look at this as a serious vulnerability cuz they're like oh so what someone breaks into my iphone and uses it as a spying you know, spy device most of the time you wouldn't care about that but i think in certain situations that can be very problematic
1: so yeah like like what happens when you butt dial with your your vx6700 and you, you accidentally <laughs> call your dad <laughs> And you talk about your
0: wife. (laughs) Not that that's ever happened to anyone we know, right?
1: (laughs) Right, right. No, not that it ever has.
0: So um, this morning I, I had some time to spend with the iPhone and do some attacks against it. And I just wanted to talk about those. And my attacks were very, very simplistic. Uh, you know, We're going to start with the basics with the iPhone. I like Larry's idea to attack it with karma. I think that's great. I think the next time we're in the studio, we should throw all kinds of wireless attacks at it. I, we, I, have,
1: another, I have another one that we should try too. I don't know. Sure. I, I know it has the, the wireless capability and you can use data um, across a wireless network. Um, but when you're in range of a wireless network, can you make uh, a SIP call instead of over your cellular plan with that?
0: See, and this is where the whole third party application thing comes in. I don't think that you can do that. Okay. Because there there's no, no SIP client on it, and without the ability to load third party applications, I, you can't do I, that. And that's the other thing I want to say to Apple is, you know, like I was telling you before the podcast, so I took MSF payload, I exported the uh, payload for the iPhone called iPhone to a binary. And I got a mock OS binary that can run on the iPhone. So I'm like, well, that's great. I'm like, all I got to do is trick a user into running that. Now, if anyone has any ideas, please write into the show, com. We want to hear about these. So we have this binary that when executed on the iPhone can give us a remote shell and can also let us download and upload files to if a fully patched iPhone were to run this program, you know, who cares about well, like I said, vulnerabilities are so nineties. Who needs a vulnerability? I just want to use it to run this program. It's the same way that we attack Windows machines, like on a pen test, put a USB key in their, you know, in their system, copy an executable such as the core agent that we've exported, and just run it. And that's the end result of exploiting a vulnerability and getting them to run code. Like if I can – it doesn't matter how I run code on someone else's system or smartphone as long as I can get them to run code. So I'm like, well, I don't have any known vulnerabilities on my iPhone. I can go spend some time and try and find some and then write an exploit. Um, or I can figure out a way to make a user run this code. Now, it's not so easy with the iPhone because – like, an executable won't just, like, load in a browser. Um, I need some kind of exploit in the browser to actually inject my code into. Um, and I tried emailing the iPhone um, binary to myself. And, like, you get the email and you can see the attachment. And, like, I, I keep pushing my finger on the attachment and nothing happens. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now third-party applications have this, like, installer app. So I could package it as a regular app. But... That would require a hacked iPhone, someone to install the installer, and then it gives them the capability to install third-party applications. And I think that's why Apple didn't include third-party applications in it to begin with, because there are very serious security implications. If they give iPhone end users the ability to install applications, then all I need to do is present that to the user, and they'll install my malware. And now there's no antivirus. There's no way really to know other than being a smart user. And we all know how smart our users are, um, <laughs> you know, if that application is really real or not. So I can see a lot of malware floating around for the iPhone if end users are given the capability to do install software that is coming from a website, install software that is coming through email. Now if there's a vulnerability, you know. Now, obviously, that's going to be one avenue to install software. If you have the capability to install software without a vulnerability, that just opens up the floodgates to people installing malware on phones. So, yeah.
1: Websites that display user agent Mozilla 5.0 iPhone. Huh. Send them a specific page. Exactly.
0: And, you know, that's a great segue, Larry. So, what I did today was I... um. My iPhone was on my local wireless network. So I started up a Netcat listener uh, on port 80. And then I went onto my iPhone and I went to the Safari, mobile Safari browser. And I browsed to, to my machine. And what happened was I saw that HTTP request. And in that HTTP request was the user agent string. We can see, like you said, Mozilla 5.0. It's an iPhone, CPU like Mac OS X, um, Apple WebKit, and all specific information about... The user agent string that's associated with my iPhone. Now, that's useful information. And it's interesting, once I saw that I didn't find a snort signature for the libtiff vulnerability. Oh, and so I think if you wanted to find also to speak to the the snort signature things was if you wanted to find iPhones in your organization, you could very easily write a snort signature that picked up on the iPhone's user agent string. Now, yeah, user agent strings can be um, spoofed and you have to take that into consideration, but I think you could very easily identify how many iPhones are using your wireless network just by keying off of the user agent string.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool.
0: So I thought as far as network identification and reconnaissance that being able to identify the user agent string and analyzing it is very important because that opens us up to, like you said, Larry, it's an excellent point. You go to a website, that website reads your user agent string based on that. It sends you the appropriate exploit for your iPhone that you can monitor your wireless network, look for the user agent string and see how many iPhones you have. If it's your policy not to allow any other smartphones than maybe the ones you're supporting, then that can be something that you can use to enforce policy Um, I think as an attacker, if you're in an open wireless network and you're able to sniff all the data, that if you look at the user agent string and pluck out iPhones and you have an exploit for the iPhone, that gives you a list of potential targets. So I think that that string is very, very important. Now, again, it can be spoofed. And I don't know if you hack your iPhone, can you change the appearance of your user agent string? I don't Mm. know.
1: That would be interesting.
0: If you hack it and put SSH on it, you can SSH Tunnel, and that may be a good a good segment as well to show people how to do that. So I think we will progress to Paul hacking his iPhone <laughs> for fun and profit. Um, but for now, I want to make sure that we cover all the bases on what comes stock within the iPhone. So – um, if we are, um, you know, monitoring network, and then we, what? Is, so I, I see that my iPhone's on the network. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do a TCP and map scan. So I'm going to do the SYN scan. I'm going to do an OS fingerprint, and I'm just going to see what I can get. I haven't done a UDP scan yet. Right here is just a TCP scan, and we see that TCP port 62078 is open and unknown. Um other reports have that port as being a TCP wrapped D, uh, so being like wrapped with TCP wrappers. Um but I, I don't know what that port is yet. I am, you can see, it it did take quite a long time to scan my iPhone (laughs) over the network. Yikes. Uh, But it did have one open TCP port, which is interesting. I think that that can open you up to attack. Certainly, whatever application is listening on that port has a buffer overflow. Um, You know, that can open you up to now remote exploitation of your iPhone.
1: It only takes
0: one port. That's right. And there is one port open, um, at least on my iPhone with firmware version 1.1.2. So... That is, um, that's all, that's where we're at with the iPhone hacking. We'll come at you with more technical segments. Um, Larry, uh, has had some great suggestions for future iPhone hacking. So we will be doing more of that and uh, reporting back our results on the show. Yeah. And I'm now, uh, I've officially given yet even more money to Steve Jobs.
1: (laughs) You have, you are definitely
0: solidified your relationship with the dark side. I have, I have, I will say, and I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this show, but the iPhone is, it is a really nice phone and I, I I do, I do enjoy using it. Certainly anything was better than my old phone.
1: Right. And and I, and I will say that when you did get your um, VX 6700, you said that was a really nice phone and you enjoyed using it. Yeah. So just take everything that Paul says I'm on that with a grain of salt.
0: Right. Just like <laughs> Bruce Potter, don't believe anything that I say. Right. <laughs> I'm going to play a quick sweeper and we're going to come back with the stories for the week. Okay. We're calling Ke- We're calling Kevin, Kevin at Kev, Harvard. Kevin at Ameren. He Kevin just, Ameren. Kevin Ameren. He just posted a pin on our Frapper map. We're going to call and leave him a voicemail message. We Google hacked him. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't hard. It's very timely. Oh, it's ringing. What if he answers? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you record it. That's it.
1: We ask, have to ask him
0: first. What are we going to say? Want the call and say hello? It'd be funny if it forwarded to a cell phone and the answer. <laughs> Please hold. Your call is being transferred
1: to an automated voicemail system.
0: You have reached Kevin Amaranth. Please leave your message after the tone. Hi, Kevin. This is Paul from Paul.com Security Weekly. And this is Larry from and- Paul.com Security Weekly. And this is Twitchy. This is Andy. We just wanted to thank you for posting a pin on our Frapper map. And don't ask how we got your number, but just let's say Google was involved. We Google hacked you. See, we're sponsored by Syngress and we read Google hacking. Yes, yeah, so we just wanted to call and say hi and thanks for leaving a pin. And by the way, we're weird. We're,
1: we're really drunk.
0: To say. Yeah,
1: yeah, in other words, we drunk
0: dialed you. And we're recording this and expect to hear it on the next show. So, uh, please call us back so we can actually hear you on the next podcast. And thank you for listening to Paul.com security weekly. Yay. Pretty rules.
1: Hey Paul, this is, uh, Kevin. I just got your, uh, message. Sorry. I missed it. Um, Hey, I love the show and, uh, I like the
0: drunk dialing. Uh, definitely, definitely add it to the, uh, either the show notes or if you want to add to the podcast, go for it. Um, I'll dial in to the, uh, next open podcast and say hello. Uh, if you're
1: in Denver, uh, I'll probably see you there too. I know Twitchy's going to be there. I'm not sure if,
0: uh, if
1: you're going to be able to get out.
0: So if you're in Denver, I'll see you this week. Otherwise, I'll, uh, I'll try to dial in. Say hello. Kevin, thanks for the message. Bye. Hello. Hello. Are we back? We're back. We are hey, spe- back. Speaking of open shows,
1: that might be a very good idea for our one hundredth episode.
0: Yes, I, we talked about that. Thank you for reminding yeah. me. We should um, definitely. We want to do that. I don't know when yeah. our hundredth episode <laughs> will be. It depends on how many interviews and or weeks off that we take um, in between <laughs> now and episode one hundred. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, think- so after this episode will be, will be it'll be like ten episodes from now. Yeah. So yeah, you figure and, 10 weeks, you know, it'll be sometime next year, certainly, probably around ShmooCon time. Yeah. Um,
1: and, and I think that uh, there's some significantly better technology to allow that to happen nowadays. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I participated in that uh, podcast, the Typical Mac User Podcast. Oh, you Ta-Hiao. think we should
0: use TalkShoe?
1: Talk seemed to be a really, really good um, method for being able to do one of those types of open shows. Mm. I mean, from my experience with Victor on that podcast, it seemed really slick. Right. So maybe we should uh, have a chat with Victor and and see if he can help us out. Sure. Such Web 2.0 newbies.
0: I was just going to do it via Skype and just, you know, whoever calls via Skype, just answer it and talk to them. That too. Whatever, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: Either way. Either way. So, speaking of attacking mobile phones, yeah, there was an article on using C-Surf to attack mobile phones. Oh, and this was from Aviv Roth. I hope I'm saying that right. I think he said we did say it right on the last show. Um, and this was kind of neat. So, uh, I read this and I thought it was going to be an actual attack like against the phone. It's actually an attack on... The well, it's an attack on the phone, but it's also it uses the provider's uh, website to send messages to SMS messages, text messages to the subscribers' phones. Now, normally, like you can go onto their website and they have strict restrictions around, you know, okay, I go to this form, I enter their mobile number, I give it a subject, and I can send them a text message. They put limitations on that so that you can't like flood the person's phone with text messages. However, they have advertisements on the sites for the various phone providers that pop up and say, if you're interested in this ad, enter your mobile number and we'll send you a text message with more information. Uh So that whole process can be – can be uh, exploited and it has a cross-site request forgery vulnerability so that you can just keep sending it HTTP requests and with someone's mobile number in it and then you can flood their phone with SMS messages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that it's, pretty neat?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I've actually encountered something like this um, but and I'll, I'll let you get through the story and then I'll, I'll, I'll chime in on it.
0: Yeah. So my one last thing there was that um, the point was that not only can this cause a denial of service attack against your phone. Um, But if you don't have a plan with unlimited text messages, this can cost you a lot of money and it can be quite costly to receive all of those text messages.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. So the experience that I've Mm. seen something similar like this is that there's a large uh, paging network um, here in New England. Um, I did some work for a customer Um actually decided that they were going to take the this list of pager numbers mm-hmm. and post them on a GeoCities page
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, with clickable links so that all they had to do was on this page put in the message and then click on the thing, mm-hmm. and it would and it would page these individuals. Um, I went through it and found out that this particular paging customer, our p- paging company, uh, does not have those particular restrictions as to how many messages you can send in certain periods of time mm-hmm. and created a short shell script with WGET, Mm -hmm. to fill in all those information, craft the request, and then send a bunch of messages to one of my coworkers. Sweet. Uh, Unfortunately, this group of pages that were posted to GeoCities are for individuals that really need to receive pages. Um, It could be uh, a matter of life and death if Mm. they were not to um so by denial performing a denial of service against, attack against those types of things um could be quite bad they were advised against doing it and um i don't know if they continue to do it anyways mm. it was it was beyond my control at that point the customer is always the right
0: yeah it's it's interesting I, I was just trying to think like de- defense wise i think you have to construct your web application with some security safeguards around it and um you know, as the end user, I don't know. I mean, I guess you can buy an unlimited plan and that would limit your your uh, exposure. However, that, you know, it's going to depend on your provider how expensive that actually is um, and how yeah. many text messages you actually send. So, neat stuff. So, I did not know that Firefox had a, CS, a C-Surf protection tool, Larry.
1: What's that? The yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I found this... Uh Found this today. Um, it was sort of a brainstorming session for um, this blog entry where they, he, he was talking about releasing the tool. Um, if you go and look at it, he's got a bunch of um, mm-hmm. stuff that, you know, ways a browser can prevent surf, And he's got, uh, let's see, six different um, items on there that he tried to address.
0: Yeah, that's, and he's so right. The browser is definitely a way to, you know, inside the browser is where you want to protect against C-Surf.
1: Yeah. Yep. So uh, they actually do have um, uh, uh, an actual tool that was released fairly recently. Um, it's on Google Code. Um, check out the link to go grab it. And they're they seeming to find that it's uh, actually working pretty well, pretty well. And, they quote, active defense for the browser, mm-hmm. according to one. The, the deals I thought this was pretty interesting uh, if you guys go and check it out um we'd love to hear your comments um certainly um send um stuff back to Mario, I believe his name is mm-hmm.
0: and uh
1: yeah yeah go 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 check it out
0: yeah it, it, you know it's a funny a lot of times you go to a, a vendor and you tell them that they have a cSR vulnerability and they may come back to you and say well that 's a browser problem you know that 's how tightly coupled that vulnerability is with the browser so I, I hope that some protections within firefox are are put in because that's um, you know th- that 's a struggle that I think a lot of people are are having with with certain vendors mm-hmm. cross site scripting in the, the MySQL error function you know d- debugging code is really helpful." Um however I in and this is an example of where debugging code has kind of gone wrong in that you can cause error conditions in a website that result in cross-site scripting conditions, um, and they're a result of the MySQL underscore error function, which is a uh, offers debugging information um, in the resulting web page when you interact with a web application. And I think that people need to realize that you need to have two copies of your website running on two different systems. You need to have your Uh, development system running on a development web server and have your development version of the code running on it Hmm. and that's the system that you test with and then when you go to your production system that you don't have any of the debug code in there or debugging functions enabled in whatever web application you're working with and you know in your process of transitioning from development to qa to production or development to production that you have some process to strip out any of your debug code before it goes into production just as an extra method of protection for your application and just a matter of you know, reducing the number of lines of code. Um, it's just good programming practice, I think, to um, strip out a lot of that debugging information when your code goes into um, production. And, and you know, here's a case where there's a security vulnerability associated with uh, code that is in there for debugging purposes
1: yeah yeah and no, this is i'm i'm actually in the process of taking my g c i h exams and this is one of the concepts uh not necessarily with your your website debugging and mysqL but one of the concepts that's covered um as far as code review um coming from you know your test network to your your production um facilities and and that's definitely one of the things that they stress as well
0: mm hmm VoIP security is something I will be experiencing in SAN c d i in December.
1: Yes, and also one of the reasons why I asked if there were SIP clients or the iPhone could make SIP calls uh, mm-hmm. natively over right. a Wi-Fi network because yeah, this would know. be also interesting. Because yeah. I, I know there are there, not obviously iPhones, but there are other phones that can transition to mm-hmm. making phone calls from the cellular network to a Wi-Fi network.
0: Yeah, there's all kinds of third-party apps.
1: Yeah, no, no not third-party third-party apps, but they have it natively built in.
0: I don't see. I don't think the iPhone has it natively built in. Yeah, I don't no. think
1: it does either. But I know there are phones out there that exist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'll have to I'll have to follow up and find out what those were. If and if anybody can remember off the top of their head, feel free to email us. So yeah, uh new over P sniffing tool, uh Tap, can do remote and I put that in quotes. SIP eavesdropping on multiple calls at the same time, dump them to wave files. Um, sort of the same sort of feature that's been in Kane and Able uh, mm-hmm. for some time. However, it can do multiple calls, multiple wave files. But the one thing that it does that's really neat is that it will take all the SIP identifier info and encode those into the file names and such. So if I were to call Paul and it says that my call came from my phone and the destination of Paul, it will record that, that Larry called Paul on this date and time. And here's
0: the contents. Hmm.
1: That's... That was kind of valuable because you know normally it's you know all right where did this come from who knows.
0: So I'm just I'm I'm looking at the, an iPhone application called iFlickr, which mm. is one of the things the iPhone definitely lacks is being able to send your photos to Flickr. <laughs> right.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I did hear some comments at least on the older versions of iFlickr. Yeah. Regardless of whether you, it doesn't have the uh, the whatever. You take the picture, it goes to Flickr.
0: Oh, really? Yeah,
1: you're accidentally to take a picture of something inappropriate with iFlickr installed, boom, on Flickr.
0: Oh, that's not good.
1: Yeah, be careful. Be careful. I don't know if the newer versions or if it's been updated. (laughs) It looks
0: like the newer version does give you kind of a... The option. Yeah, a menu. A menu. So, where were we? Um... Tell
1: us about Google as a password cracker.
0: Yeah, this was actually made the uh, Shania blog. So someone yeah. was uh, doing some incident response work and found a. Not, I don't know if he knew it was an MD5 sum when he looked at it, but found some kind of hash, plugged it into Google, and got the plain text. Because if you know, if that information's out there on the internet and Google is going to index it, you could actually use Google to derive the plain text hash versus uh, you know the plain text from the hash if someone has already cracked it published that to a website somewhere. So I thought that was an interesting use of Google uh, as a password cracker. Obviously it's only going to work for hashes whose plain text has been displayed somewhere on a page that Google has indexed.
1: Yeah and, I, and actually I did read the same post as well and I'm actually kind of glad you did. From my understanding the the, the individual in question did know that they'd store the passwords in MD5 hashes in the database so when he was searching for it because he was trying to um, build something that would calculate the MD5 hashes and do comparisons
0: mm-hmm.
1: for dictionary words and just decided on a whim to Google search it and found it mm-hmm. so I, yeah I, I think they did know that it was was that way which is not
0: the best way to store your passwords by the way no certainly not <laughs> Uh, retail wireless security, I assume we're going to talk somewhere. TJX had to be in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah
1: it did, but it, it's really, really brief. Um, just that you know, TJX is probably just the tip of the iceberg for some of these types of things. Um, a study by Airtight Networks revealed that 85% of, um, sorry, it should be 2,500 devices surveyed in retail stores mm-hmm. were vulnerable to some sort of wireless hacks. Mm-hmm. Whether it be information disclosure with poor s s i d s that would say um you know big chain store number fourteen well mm-hmm. that's, that's some information uh none or poor encryption, and in many of the cases mm-hmm. these uh devices were point of sale systems and or scanning slash inventory equipment hmm. hmm interesting, yeah. Yeah, so I'm thinking it's time to start busting out my N770 when I go shopping next time (laughs) and see what I can find. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, so if you guys happen to do that, we'd love to hear about your adventures or Bob's adventures. Of course, Uh, Bob. uh, So so that maybe we can go and try to recreate some of those at um, some particular retailers, especially large ones that we may have to travel a little bit out of our way to go figure out. (laughs)
0: So stealing your sling boxes. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. So apparently the sling box listens on port 5001 TCP is – uh yeah let me just make sure. 5001, uh, the appliance, and you authenticate it for a username and password combination. Well, if someone doesn't change the default password, I'm trying to figure out what the default password um, was on some of these boxes, that you can just connect to anyone's – Slingbox. Now, since the sling boxes are only um, produced and distributed in certain countries, they wrote this little script that goes through – Finds the IP addresses in a specific block that's associated with a specific country using the GOIP-free database and then searches for port 5001 and then tries that default password so that you can connect to other people's Slingbox over the internet and watch their published TVs, movies, whatever. Mm. My one comment on that was um, handy. (laughs) So I thought, yeah. that was, I thought that was neat. You know, and, and to speak to the poor password policies, you have to have to have to change your default passwords. I mean, we could say that on every show, it's just like an important thing that needs to be done on whatever device. You know, even if it's not the greatest password in the world, if you know, you increased your security tenfold just by taking what that default password was and changing it to something different.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
0: So, you know, oftentimes that may not lead to something as like trivial as, well, okay, someone's watching TV off of my sling box, whatever. Um, It leads to all kinds of other security implications, such as, you know, gaining remote access to your Cisco router in your organization. Now I control all the traffic flowing in and out of your organization because you left us some kind of default password. So you definitely want to... Um, have a policy that says all default passwords in your organization will be changed and work very hard to enforce that. Nessus has included as a plugin the ability to interact with THC's Hydra. So you can configure a password database based on the default passwords that you find online. There's a couple of different sites we've talked about on the show where you can get default passwords. And in your Nessus scans, you can just flag those. And I think that's a great way. You know, We talked about how Hacking without exploits and not scanning for vulnerabilities. And, you know, I realized that the, there is the capability of Nessus to interact with Hydra like that. And I haven't used it extensively because it's kind of a pain in the butt to configure and it changes depending on which Nessus client you're using. So even if you configure Hydra separately when you run Nessus scans, just to check for those default passwords. Um you know the FenLick group puts together a list of default passwords that you can use and modify, uh, parse through and then create your own database out of and just run that against all devices coming in, you know, on your on your network. And that can kind of nip it in the bud and say, hey, look, you need to change that. It's an easy thing to um, to fix because it's just changing a password. So, you know, I, I like to break it down for people and customers that, um, okay, here are the things you need to do to improve the security on your network. And here are the ones that are a low level of effort to fix, but you get a high benefit or value from doing that. And... The default password thing is low level of effort to fix and definitely high value. It falls in that category, so uh as security professionals, you need to be identifying those devices in your network and making people change those passwords and This yeah. is just you know this is kind of a fun example, like hey, I can watch t v coming off your sling box, um but it has more serious repercussions in different scenarios,
1: yeah, yeah, I was just looking at some of the sling box stuff and uh it looks like now that they make you change your default, the default default password of blank when you set the device up but um i could be wrong it just took a few minutes to peek through stuff while you were talking
0: so what was that larry i'm sorry was, you you <laughs> did you peek at the article while i was talking i did
1: I, I did and i was also looking for default slingbox passwords yeah yeah and uh it looks like they make you um change the password when you set it up
0: Oh, okay.
1: But I could be completely wrong. I only took a few minutes and I wasn't really you know, I was sort of listening to you talking to it at the same time, so it wasn't
0: I just wanted it was a default password that he it, was using. It may be,
1: it may be. And then again, what's to stop you from trying to brute force said password? Because right, they right, suspect right. that the logging services on the box are non existent. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because the default username is admin, possibly. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, shall we talk about a change of heart at Microsoft? A change of heart at Microsoft? Get out. Well, well, not really. Well, sort of, but not really. So, last week we talked about the uh, the problems with randomization, random number generation gener- generation with Windows 2000, and the ability for um, the random gener- number generation to affect uh, SSH and SSL connections. So you could potentially steal any information um, over an SSL connection, not needing to be admin and all and all that mess. So if you don't remember, go back and listen to the last episode. Um, however, so Microsoft really didn't com- comment too much about the Windows 2000 um, lack of um, randomness uh, on Windows 2000. However, they did confirm that it is an issue with Windows XP Service Pack and up to Service Pack 2. So the way we talked about it last week was that someone can steal your SSL session, potentially recreate all that data, not as an admin, grab all that network traffic um, because the randomness that is not strong um, can be used to recreate the SSL keys and then decode that network, that traffic off of the network or potentially even off the system itself. Um, Microsoft is going to fix uh, this issue with the um, randomness in Service Pack 3, but it won't be out until the second half of 2008.
0: Um,
1: Still, Microsoft is arguing admin rights are needed to be used for this to really be an exploit to, quote, read any file on the system, but it's not a file on the system. It's a network potentially protocol at this point to make this stack possible. Um, and Microsoft is also saying, well, it's not really an exploit because um, you need another attack to make this possible. Well, duh.
0: <laughs> like there are <laughs> no other
1: attacks, right? right? Right, for Windows XP system at yeah. all, given that they really need to talk to the guys in the UK that we talked about last week that saw the machine cracked in 11 minutes on an open wireless network, and they were shocked. These are Microsoft folks. <laughs> so,
0: nice.
1: um, they're still being really quiet about Windows 2000 patches because, in you know, in most cases, Windows 2000 is largely unsupported by Microsoft. They've dropped support. However, they are required to supply security patches for free. So Microsoft says this isn't a security problem, so that they don't have to supply a patch. Just my particular, you know, comments on the situation. Now, my comments to the community: Proof is in the pudding. Write a tool and demo it to Microsoft. If they don't think this is a security problem,
0: hmm. you know, I, I I think that will motivate Microsoft. I think that you know maybe before two thousand three or around that time that might not have made an impact, but I think that they're you know they're a different company now and they yeah. they take security more seriously now. So I think that coming up with a proof of concept is certainly going to you know light a fire under their butts to do something about about the problem.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I definitely they're taking you know, some more interest in security. However, when something like this comes across and they're just kind of like really blase about it, it really frightens me.
0: So I, I saw the headline for this next article and, and I was excited. I was like, wow, new security for firmware. I'm like, this is what we need. I'm like, firmware is out of date, you know, and a lot of people's routers, firmware has security problems. I'm like, You know, we need more security for our firmware. Like this is an area of research for me and something I feel very strongly about. And then I read the article. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. Um, So the Phoenix Technologies has come up with a way, and I quote, to embed a command and control system into the BIOS of a mobile PC that will let an owner control a computer remotely, wherever it is. I'm like, okay, so you've put a tro you put a backdoor in the BIOS and now you've called that a security feature. Mm-hmm. Like what and is that? I'm like, okay, I understand how it could be used as a security feature. I'm like, but how does that improve the security firmware? It sounds to me like it just makes an additional feature available to an attacker, potentially.
1: Yes, and Paul, I I, I got to continue with the article where you said that uh, an embedded command and control system in the BIOS of a mobile PC that will let an owner remotely control a computer wherever it is. The next line in the article is a quote from the yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead. technology yeah. officer that says the machine can be turned into a brick with this.
0: That's awesome. So remote attackers can break your laptop. That's awesome. Like I've always <laughs> wanted that. Like, but how is that freaking security? <laughs> it should be new insecurity for firmware. Yes. This. And this is from Government Computer News.
1: Mm, brick your iPhone without any hacks.
0: Thank you very much. Nice. Oh, a lot of listeners wrote us about this next story, Larry, and I'm really glad that you put it in there because I forgot about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So apparently the the UK government loses personal info too. It's not just the morons. The US government um, – dope oh, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. They're not all morons. Um, some of them are trapped by bureaucracy. Um, so – Apparently, the UK government, I don't remember the the exact branches and and all that good stuff. However, they wrote personal info, including the UK's equivalent of social security numbers, to Optical Disk and protected it with a password and then dropped them in the mail to another agency. Uh, They never showed up at the destination. Huh. Nice. And they've done some tracking and they can't seem to figure out where they went. Um. There are a lot of, quote, sensitive data on this. Uh, government and banking identification numbers for 25 million individuals from 7.25 million families. Can you say ouch?
0: That's just unbelievable. Yeah.
1: yeah, And I, I'm thinking about this in... Most of the common tools that I can think of that folks would be using just to do the password protection for something like this would be Winzip, uh password protected PDFs, Word or Excel documents. And it's been my experience that those are very easily crackable. All of them. All of them. In you know, as in under under ten minutes apiece. Mm. If not significantly less under ten seconds. So
0: yeah, uh, you know. Again, I, I've had users come up to me and said that you know that they store all their passwords in a password protected Excel file, and, and that's just not cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no. Cool. I mean, I've been the recipient of password protected PDFs before. And, yeah, it's uh, just. I mean, I mean, Bob has been the the recipient of password PDFs, protected PDFs before.
0: You know, um, it, it, it is exactly. It's so. The reason that it's bad is because it's so easy to run an offline brute force attack against a single file.
1: Yeah, even, you know what I'm even, saying? Yeah, even even worse. But in you know such of the cases, um, some of the older versions of WinZip and uh, Adobe Acrobat, you know PDFs, um, their in their password storage techniques are so poor. Um, it's like having a backdoor.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Don't, you don't even need to launch a brute force attack. It will take you know under a minute to do it, even with you, really
0: good passwords. You really need to be using PGP, yes, in my opinion. Yes, I think that that definitely replaces that that kind of technology. Um, yep. So if we could quickly move through the last couple stories here. Oh, we only got one more. Okay. So uh, at least that I see here. Oh, if you uh, refresh, I added that security 2.0 story.
1: Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, let's plow through. Sure. Do um, you want me to do the Wireshark one? Go ahead. Okay, so Wireshark can be made to crash or deny service when analyzing sever- several different types of traffic slash files. Um, there are a bunch of stuff in here, but note some of the real common stuff, such as MP3 files, SSL, HTTP, and RPC port mapper traffic. How often are you going to see SSL and HTTP, HTTP and RPC port mapper traffic on your network and could be analyzing them? And someone hmm, could have... Quite often. In- yeah, and someone could have injected... Um, crafted packets that could either cause an of service or make Wireshark crash. And, Paul, you and I both know that the crash is just the first step to an exploit.
0: Right, right. I was just thinking the same thing.
1: Right. Um, so be very careful. Make sure you go and update your Wireshark uh, 9.9... Sorry, six a is available now uh, to mm-hmm. address these issues. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think it's important in general to keep up with Wireshark as... A lot of the um, protocol dissectors have hmm. just a long history of vulnerabilities. So yeah,
1: yeah, and and go buy Wireshark and Ethereal from Singers Publishing. Yeah, um, do
0: that too. <laughs>
1: yeah, because I'm also one of the co-authors on that book.
0: <laughs> so uh, Security 2.0. I just wanted to briefly add that uh, Joel Essler had, a, who was a podcast listener, by the way, had a a really nice posting to the uh, Internet Storm Center and was asking about you know. Um, the new security that we're all seeing, this kind of turnaround, you know, uh, he says, you know, about the restrictive policies of .mil, gov and others when it comes to security, you know, does it really work? Where are we at? Do firewalls really work? Um, does web filtering really work? And, and and all that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, if you are working for an organization that has one of those strict policies, you need to really be thinking about that and how it applies to the current threats that are out there and that your security policy is this living, breathing document that needs to adapt to the current threats available. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, 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 and actually I want to address two of the examples that he's got there. Sure. Um, the first example is why in some environments is instant messaging banned? Is it because of the security risk or people transferring files in and out of the network? Um, I've done some work for um, some clients that um, block instant messaging specifically because it's a time sink. You spend your time doing instant messaging and not working. Mm. And the other one is uh, the other example. I recently, he says he recently ran across an example where iTunes was not allowed on the network because it was considered peer-to-peer. Um, I uh, another organization that I've seen uh, blocks iTunes specifically because of copyright potential issues. Right. And that yeah. if, even if si- songs, if you if that the individual user purchases the songs and puts them on a work computer, um, they are not owned by the corporation, uh, so could potentially have some copyright violation issues, and they don't want to be involved with any of that, so they uh, they deny it. Hmm.
0: You know, it's interesting, the motivation for blocking a lot of these tools doesn't really take into account that um, symbol configuration or usage policies can counteract a lot of the vulnerabilities that they bring to light. So, Yep, yep. Very interesting. And if there are no more stories... I want to t-
1: Tell me about the uh, Wi-Fi soda can stuff.
0: This was really cool. So they took soda cans. Basically, they cut them in half. They painted them black. They drilled a hole in the bottom, and they stuck an antenna through it. And you can watch a video of this whole thing. And they made, like, uh, a, an antenna modifier out of it that hmm. increased signal strength. Basically, cool. like the paper ones that you could make before, but they made it out of a soda can.
1: Hey.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. I want, it, it was really easy. Well, at least they made it look really easy. Of course, they say, hey, look, you have a soda can. And then like the next scene is, OK, here's a soda can cut in half. And I'm like, wait a minute. What happened? <laughs> like, where? Yeah. How do you cut the soda? What's the best way to cut the soda can in half? You know, And
1: how many fingers did you lose doing it?
0: Right, right. Like, did you just have the like magic, like reciprocating saw in the back or something? Like, what's the best way to do that? So obviously, you know, you could use a Dremel tool, I think. There's a lot of different ways to cut a soda can in half, but...
1: I used my magic missile.
0: (laughs) I used magic. Yes, magic missile. So with that, we will cut to commercial and come back and wrap this show up. It is so exciting, I can smell it. Give us the juicy stuff.
1: I mean, there was a lot of higher math, which I just don't get.
0: How much did you have to drink? You're right, Larry? we are sorry but this program has ended and no further calls are being taken thank you for calling
1: I am your faith
0: and we are back what do we have to wrap the show up our iTunes comments came back did you see that did you see that Larry Oh, Larry, are you there? Hello. I turned on the wrong volume. Sorry.
1: <laughs> oh, 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 no. No, I didn't see our two comments. We're back.
0: Yeah, we That's have 37 a- comments, and the ones posted on the front page are good, so I'm going to thank people for that.
1: Huh. I wonder how that happened.
0: Uh, yeah, it's Steve Jobs. I called. The you know, I called. Him, he he noticed that I bought an iPhone. And he was like, oh, Paul, he's like, I'm so sorry. Your iTunes comments like went away. He's like, I'll take the top three ones and I'll put them on your front page just because like you spent all that money for an iPhone and you talked good about it on your podcast. Uh, 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 Gotcha. Gotcha. He actually called me. You actually get a call from Steve Jobs every time you buy an iPhone. And he personally thanks you for spending um, the oodles amounts of money it takes to purchase an iPhone. Mm.
1: Really? I I don't see any customer reviews still. You don't? No, oh, I see be the first to write a review on our
0: iTunes page. I think that you need glasses, my friend.
1: <laughs> I don't see them, my friend.
0: <laughs> huh. In any case, you can check out our website at paul.com.com. Are we done? I think we're done. Over and out! Over
1: and out! <laughs>
0: uh.